Well, this morning, you can pull out your outline. You will see that our title is Worse Off Than Sodom, which is an exciting title. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. There's no better way to start a Sunday than to realize that some things and places will be better off or worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, in Matthew 11, verse 20, a section that in my Bible here starts uh, with the title that the translator gave it, Woe on Unrepentant Towns. This morning we'll look at Matthew eleven twenty through 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we think of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the towns that were so far gone from you that you sent fire from the heavens in judgment to consume the city and its inhabitants. And our hearts are heavy as we come to you and think that you might be calling that kind of judgment on other towns as well. We pray that you would help us to see how this scripture and how these words of Jesus apply to us and our community and our lives therein. Help us to see that you sent your son to bring hope and healing and miracle and transformation into the world, and yet, although the world was made through him, John tells us the world did not recognize him. The world put him to death, and yet he came back to life, and he offers life and liberty to all who believe. We pray that we would trust him, that you would use us to bring the gospel to this world before it's too late. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to tour the Holy Land, and it was an amazing opportunity to see the places, to walk on the places where Jesus walked, where the Apostle Paul walked, where David and Goliath stood, to see where Elijah slew the prophets of Baal. And it was a great experience, except for one thing. Jerusalem and all of Israel is such a small place that most of the cities of Israel have been built on so many times since the time of the Bible story, you just kind of have to imagine what life looked like, like 100 feet underground from where they were. 
And so we go to a place, we go to Jerusalem, and they say, this is where we think Jesus would have walked. Of course, all these churches and castles and cobblestones and all this wouldn't have been there, but it would have looked something like this. We go out into the desert, and they say, okay, now this is where that civilization would have been, but you see, now there's this new civilization. They built, and they built, and they built, and so just imagine underneath all this rubble was this civilization, and I wish I could show it to you, but it's 30 feet underground or whatever it is. But when we went up to the land of Galilee and we walked in the city of Capernaum, where Jesus has done a lot of his ministry here in these chapters, it was totally different. Capernaum looked a lot more like the first century than the rest of Israel, especially Capernaum itself. We walk through the city, we can go into the ancient synagogue that had been excavated. You can walk down and see a home on the shore of Galilee that they said may have been Peter's mother-in-law's house, or at least can be a house from that time that was very much similar to the house she would have lived in. You can go down to the shore and see where Jesus would have preached, where the boats would have come in, where he would have stood and told his sermons, where the Sermon on the Mount would have been preached. You can live in that area and walk in that area and see what it would have been like for Jesus to be there. You see the people walking around in the synagogue. You can imagine them because the town was very unchanged since the first century. And so we asked our tour guide, why is it that Capernaum is so undisturbed where all the other cities, even in Galilee, are so different? Tiberias has people living in it and hotels and all these other cities have been built and built and built. And our tour guide said, well, Capernaum is different. He said, Capernaum is one of three cities in this area that were destroyed in the first few centuries A.D. and never rebuilt again. So the three cities were Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. So these were three cities that were destroyed by the Romans or destroyed in an earthquake or destroyed in other means in the first 400 years after Christ and no one ever rebuilt them and we don't know why. They were ruined and stayed laying in ruins until that day. My mind immediately went to Matthew 11 where Jesus renounces these three cities in particular. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Capernaum, you think you will be lifted into the heavens? No, you will go down into Hades. I tell you the truth, it'll be more bearable on Judgment Day than than the inhabitants of Sodom. What did Jesus have against Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin? These are three cities that some scholars refer to as the evangelical triangle because most of Jesus' Galilean ministry happened in these three cities. He would go and feed the thousands of people in these three cities. He would heal folks in the synagogue in these three cities. He would raise kids from the dead in these three cities. He lifted Peter's Peter's mother-in-law out from her bed in these three cities. In Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin, so much great ministry was done. And yet Matthew tells us that Jesus began to denounce these towns because they did not repent. They saw the miraculous, but it didn't change their heart. They said, if this would have happened in other towns, even pagan towns, they would have put on sackcloth and ashes and mourned and repented when they saw the majesty of God. But you, you just clapped and went on with your life. There's a lot of gravity when we think about the fact that Jesus is watching how we respond to his message. So I think, is it going to be bearable on Judgment Day for me? 
Someday when I stand before God, am I a person who has repented adequately, who can stand before him and say, you have saved me and it's true and I get to enter into the kingdom of heaven or will I be someone who judgment day is not bearable for? But for me, the scarier thing in this passage is that even though it's great to have gravity when it comes to judgment and your individual life, Jesus is not condemning individuals in this passage. Jesus is condemning cities in this passage. This shouldn't be a passage that makes me think, will I stand the judgment day? This is a passage that should make us think, will our city stand the judgment day? If God were to come to Castro Valley, would he say, blessings on Castro Valley, you have repented of your sin and followed Jesus? Or would he say, woe to you, Castro Valley? If God showed up in Oakland or in the East Bay, in San Francisco, in California, would he view us like Chorazin and Bethsaida in Capernaum? Or would he say this is a city that has truly repented and believed the gospel? That's even scarier for me. I look around our city and I think, okay, if judgment is coming, it could be here, right? I remember having a friend who was in Texas and flying back to California, and she ran into someone in the airport, and this woman was reading a Christian novel. And so this girl, my friend of mine, goes to her and says, oh, are you reading this, whatever it is, Francine Rivers novel? I've read that novel. She said, oh, are you a Christian? Yeah, oh, that's wonderful. And she said, where are you from? And my friend says, I'm from San Francisco. And the woman goes, <laughs> like, she like, was taken aback. She said, that radical state? How do you live there, right? I was watching a video the other day, uh, there was a podcast that was kind of arguing about the different types of methodology for schooling, and they said, do you send your kids to public school or private school or homeschool, and it's a big Christian debate, and, and all the people are saying, well, hey, like, we're not saying that one way is the only way or anything, they said, well, of course, there are some areas in the country that you would never send your kids to public school, and I found myself kind of nodding along, oh yeah, I wonder where those areas would be, and then I realized they were talking about our area. Sometimes we get house flying, we live in this place that everyone else knows is a scary, scary place to live. And yet we love it, right? We're from here, and it doesn't seem that scary. I'll walk down the street, I'll talk to people. And yet Jesus comes and says that even though we so often think of Christianity as only an individual deal, when you read through the story of the whole Bible, you see that God is constantly looking at entire communities and saying, I'm going to judge the spiritual climate of this place. And so it's good to read a passage like this and ask, okay, well, how will I stand in the judgment day? But I think it's better to read this passage and ask, am I living among a people who are under the favor or under the judgment of God? Jesus mentions some pretty hard-hitting cities in this passage. He mentions Sodom. <laughs> How many of you have heard of Sodom? Yeah, okay, it's a pretty famous city from the Old Testament. Sodom kind of stood, Sodom and Gomorrah, these sister towns, stood as archetypal, pagan, terrible cities in the Old Testament. 
They became, their sin became so known and the judgment became so severe that over and over throughout the Old Testament, you see glimpses of towns that kind of look like Sodom. The language of Sodom and Gomorrah is used. You read Romans 1, you see that kind of sounds like a description of Sodom. You look at other towns like in Judges 19 and 20 and you say, wow, that town kind of sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The people who lived there were from the town that for the rest of time, when people had bad towns, they said, this town's like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It was a terrible, terrible town. And we think about what what made it so bad, and our minds quickly go to the encounter that the angels of the Lord had in the town of Sodom, where they came to visit Lot, and Lot shows them hospitality, brings them into their home, and then all the men of the town come out and start banging on the door and say, where are those visitors? Send them out so that we might have sex with them. And this town is just in fervor, wanting to rape these visitors And Lot says, take my daughters. They've never been with a man. Don't take these male visitors to our town, right? The whole thing is a mess. And we look back to that and say, okay, there's something wrong with that town. We look in the book of Jude. It explains to us in verse 7 that Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, since they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in a way similar to these angels, are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of eternal fire. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah and we immediately think of the encounter with Lot and the angels and the men of the city, but there was a lot of bad stuff going on in Sodom and Gomorrah before the angels got there. And the angels were going to the town to destroy it because its wickedness had come before the Lord. The book of Ezekiel tells us a little more about the complexity of the town of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 16, verses 47 through 50. You can write these verses down and look them up later. Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. As we read all the different passages of the corruption of Sodom and Gomorrah throughout the Old and New Testaments, We can summarize them in this way. And as I read this little summary that I wrote, you can ask yourself if this describes the nation in which we live or the city or the region in which we live. God's description of the pinnacle of depravity is a society full of pride, gluttony, prosperity, ease, neglect of the poor, sexual immorality, and an unquenchable desire to get what you want regardless of the moral implications. That sounds like what they will write in the history books about the cities in which we live. Now, sometimes we get so prideful in the church because there's a couple things on this list that we're really good at not doing or pretending at not doing. Man, all the rest of them. I feel like ease is a virtue, not a vice. Gluttony is fun. Did you have Halloween last night? I ate like a thousand pieces of candy. (laughs) Prosperity seems to be something to aspire for. 
pride comes with that, and we know that's bad. Neglect of the poor, and that's natural, right? Sexual morality, I mean, some kinds of sexual immorality I would never do, but other kinds, I mean, God gets it, right? An unquenchable desire to get what you want regardless of the moral implications. I think that happened in 2008 or so, right? All these banks and people saying, I want more, I want more, I want more, I want more, I want more. Well, what about this? Well, that's not illegal. Well, it's not illegal, but it can destroy our society. When we read a description of what makes a town wicked, we can easily look around and say, "Uh uh-oh, we're living in it. And so the question returns, (laughs) are we likely to experience the judgment of God soon? You see those people on TV, Hurricane Katrina hits, and they say, this is the judgment of God on New Orleans because its wickedness has come before the Lord. You see the tsunami in Southeast Asia 10 years ago, and we say, the people on TV say, this is the judgment of God because of the pagan idolatry that exists in Southeast Asia. And we say, no. And those people say, you know who's next? It's California. (laughs) Is God likely to judge us for the sin of the people who live in our towns? As we read through Scripture to see how God judges people and when he does, I would say the answer is probably not. We have something going for us in our cities, and it's not morality, and it's not justice, and it's not care for the disenfranchised. What we have going for us that Sodom and Gomorrah did not have going for them is we have communities of people who have faith in the one true God. Remember when God went to Sodom and Gomorrah to go and destroy it, and he runs into Abraham on the way? And God is about to leave and go down to destroy the cities. And he turns back and says, I can't not tell Abraham I'm about to destroy his, his cousin's whole town or whatever, his nephew's town. And so he goes back to Abraham and he says, hey, just so you know, we're heading down to Sodom and Gomorrah. You might see some lightning and some volcanoes and stuff. Like, and Abraham is cut to the heart. He says, God, you would surely not sweep away the wicked and the righteous together, would you? What if there are 50 righteous people there? And God says, I tell you the truth, I will not destroy that city for the sake of 50 righteous people. If there are 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not destroy it. And Abraham's like, oh, okay, how about like 45? And God says, sure, 45. (laughs) Abraham says, how about 40? God says, 40. He says, 30. God says, 30. He says, 20. God says, 20. Abraham says, but what if there's only 10? What if there's just 10 righteous people in that whole sistering cities? Will you not bring your judgment down. Will you hold back the fires from heaven for the sake of 10? And God says, if there are 10 righteous people in those cities, I will not destroy them. And he walks away, and I don't know what Abraham was thinking. Like, I think I won that negotiation, or... (laughs) He's like, Lot, Lot's wife, two daughters... We just need six more. He's like, my friend Steve lives there. He's a good guy. (laughs) But then the next day, the Lord rains down fire on Sodom and on Gomorrah. And Lot and his wife and his daughters are booking it into the desert, escaping with smoky-smelling clothing the wrath of God that was poured out. When we look at the cities in the Old Testament and God's destruction of them, and the cities of the New Testament and God's destruction of them, it seems that God is only interested in destroying cities who have every opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord, and yet no one does. 
Sodom and Gomorrah, not even 10 righteous people. There were about three and a half of them, and they all got most of the way out of there. You can look up the story and find out about the three and a half later. Think of Nineveh. Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come against me. These are a pagan people. And Jonah, it goes into Nineveh finally. Read that story this week too. You got a lot of reading this week. Goes into Nineveh finally and he just walks up the street and says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. It's not like a 24-hour notice like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a 40, 40 day notice that he gives. And everyone in Nineveh is cut to the heart. They repent. They put on sackcloth and ashes. And God relents from destruction because the people turned from their wicked ways and sought out the Lord. And Jesus sends his disciples in Matthew 10 into these neighboring cities, probably the Capernaums and Bethsaidas and Chorazines. And they go in there and he says, you're sending you out like sheep among wolves. Watch out, because some towns will bring you in. Other towns will reject you outright. And he says, when you go to a town and no one lets you in, and you can't have an inroads to the gospel, and you preach and you try to do miracles, but no one wants it, he says, leave that city, shake the dust off your sandals. And that city is doomed. The cities in the Bible that were destroyed outright were cities that had zero presence of God followers living within them. And Jesus here in the passage we read in Matthew 11 talks about the cities of Tyre and Sidon and says their judgment day is going to be better than y'all's judgment day. And Tyre and Sidon were kind of like the mini Ninevehs of that day in Israel. There were these cities that pagans lived in. It was greatly under pagan control. And yet there were pockets of believers in Jesus in those cities. If you read through the books of, book of Acts, you see the Apostle Paul going on missionary journeys and stopping in Tyre and stopping in Sidon and greeting the believers there and spending some time with the followers of Jesus Christ in these cities. You don't see Paul doing that in Bethsaida or Chorazin or in Capernaum even. These cities outright rejected the Lord Jesus. And so we live in a city, in a community where if you read the description in the Bible of what a wicked city looks like, we're living in it. And, and yet the reason I don't believe that destruction is imminent is because, hey, God is long-suffering. He does not want to bring destruction until it's the appropriate time and people have a chance to repent and be because we're in it. And it's not because there's anything good about you or me, right? And Jesus said, and it makes these words make a lot more sense now in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. And we always talk about, if you go back and listen to that message online, that the salt's primary role was to preserve a, a thing. You put salt in meat to preserve it from decay. And a lot of times we think that our role as salt of the earth is to preserve our community from decaying morally and injustice in those things. And that is true. But one of the other values of being salt in the earth is that when a community is preserved, it's preserved from the judgment of God. That God will not pour down fire on Castro Valley or Oakland or San Francisco or Fremont or wherever you live because you're there. And like he said to Abraham, for the sake of ten, I will not wipe away the wicked and the righteous together. And so that could become a source of pride. You could be like, well, I must be pretty cool that God would not send fire down on my city because I live in it. It could be a source of fear and say, I hate my city. I'm getting out of it so the fires will come. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's not going to work. 
When you think you're the only one left, remember Elijah, who God's like, you're not the only guy who follows me in your city. There are more. God has put you in your city in a strategic role, and one of it's that salt role where just by existing, you preserve it, and you give it a chance to repent and come to know Jesus. But right after Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, he says you're the light of the world. The other reason Jesus put you in your city is so that you can bring the light of the glory of the gospel into the city around you. That, that's the reason that you sit and exist in your city. It's not just so that God doesn't destroy them yet, but later. But God has put you there so that you can hold it fast so it's not destroyed and bring the gospel, the light of the gospel, to your neighbors and your coworkers and the people on your street. When Jesus talks about the Great Commission, he says, send the gospel into the ends of the earth. Go into all nations. And we know with our missions emphasis here in this faith community, with our view of how God does ministry in the world, is that the goal of the gospel is to get to every tongue and tribe and people on planet earth. And so before Jesus returns, there should be a gospel presence in every single city so that every human being and every tribe and every people group and every language group has an opportunity to hear the gospel and turn before judgment comes. And the way that those people are going to hear the gospel is through the lips of yourself. He's put you in your city. Acts 17 says that God has appointed the times and the places where all of us will live. You live on Redwood Road, it's on purpose. You live on Somerset, it's on purpose. You live on El Camino Real, it's on purpose. God has appointed the time and the place where you shall live. That crazy neighbor is on purpose. <laughs> you guys all have one. You have one. Cool. I, I don't have any if you're in, if my neighbor and you're here. All my have, we're set. We're set. God has appointed for you to live there so that you might preserve that place and be a lighthouse for the gospel wherever you live. On the way out today, you have an opportunity to pick up those tickets and invite your friends and neighbors and co-workers to come here. And it's not so that you can kind of sneak them up here and then let Larry save them or something. That's not how it works, right? We believe that you should have relationships with the folks around you and so that gospel conversations become natural, so that opportunities like the presentation can open their eyes to spiritual things and a conversation with you becomes natural. The hundreds of people on this stage are praying that you will have great follow-up with the people that you've brought. And that's the reason we stopped doing the billboards and stuff a few years back and really started pushing towards you inviting your friends and me inviting my friends and all those different things is because we believe in the power of relationship for the gospel. That you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and if someone is going to hear about Jesus or see Jesus, they're going to see him by watching you in your yard with your, with your kids. What's coming out of the windows of your house? We'll move on. Peter is a great epistle, 1 Peter, that explains what it's like to suffer as you're scattered and you're away from your homeland. As you're away from the people of God completely and you live in these little pockets and you're suffering and persecuted. Let me read a few passages in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is 1 Peter 2, 19 through, or sorry, 9 through 12. Talking about the church, Peter says, you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. This is getting fun. A holy nation. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people. 
but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in this world, to abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world, and we are a city within our city. And the local churches that exist within Castro Valley and even the church of Castro Valley and the churches of the East Bay and the churches of California exist as little mini cities within the cities in which we reside. That we have become a people, that we are a people set apart, called to God and to each other to demonstrate to the world the glory of God, the holiness of God, the compassion of God, and the image of God to the people who live around us. Peter says, as he continues, that our role in our society is to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or the president as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but... Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Peter says, yes, you live as a city within your city. That This is a city in of itself. And yet one of the ways that you demonstrate the glory of God and the submissive spirit of Jesus Christ to the world outside that is dying and perishing and awaiting judgment is by submitting to the human institutions in which we live, by being model citizens of the city that we live in. Right? So when you see on Facebook, don't pay taxes, look what the government do. Do not not pay taxes. And not because you won't go to jail, but because by paying taxes, you show that you are submissive to a pagan government. And by doing that, you show the submissive nature of Jesus Christ who submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. That one of the ways that we have an amazing influence in our community is that people see that even though we are so different from them, we are such beautiful submissive spirits to the governing agents in our community. That we submit to our president like no one else. We submit to our congressmen and our senators like no one else. And even if they're people like Nero or they're people like the terrible Caesars of Rome, that we submit to them and we honor them. And it shows that we are submissive people. And so we are this weird enigma that even though we're so different from the world, we live as model, model citizens of the world in which we live. It's a weird, weird dynamic. Show proper respect to everyone. Peter says, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, and honor the king. When God's people were taken from Israel into Babylon, God told them, you're going to be there for a while. Put down roots and start doing ministry within the city that I have put you in. And this is what God tells people, exiles who are living in a pagan land, who all they want to do is hold on to their identity back in Israel and not connect with the pagan Babylonians. Here's what God says. Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may ha have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not de de decrease. <laughs> Set down roots. You're going to be in Babylon for a while. And then he says this also. 
Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Integrate yourself into the life of the city. Pray for it. Seek its peace. Seek its prosperity. There are beautiful stories from the first few centuries of the church when the people in in Rome and in Greece were having babies and discarding them in garbage dumps because they didn't want them. Christians would quietly go and gather up these babies and raise them as their own and adopt them into their families and teach them the ways of the Lord. And one of the reasons Christianity started spreading is because Christians would take all of the discarded people from society and give them dignity, give them life, give them food, and send them out on a mission from Jesus Christ. They lived as these beautiful model citizens within their city. And they honored the government, they honored their city however they could, and in places where they couldn't, they lived quietly, and sometimes they died for it. But they sought the peace, they sought the prosperity, they sought the goodness and the justice within the city in which God had put them. Because they saw themselves as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, as a city within the city that seeks the good of the city. And not primarily as individuals, but primarily as a community. That's kind of where this starts, is that we always think that God looks at us like individuals, and who cares if everyone else is going to hell around me? I'm good with God. That's not how God works. He, he looks at y'all. He says, you are a city within a city. How is your city doing? How are you caring for your neighbor, for your mother, for your brother, for your sister in Christ? How do you care for one another? And we're not like Cain and Abel who said, I'm not my brother's keeper. We realize it's our job to serve the people that God has put into our lives, and because together we will face God someday. Sure, whether you've submitted your life to Christ or not determines whether or not you will spend eternity in heaven, but you will also be held accountable for the member of the community, the faith community that you lived as. Did you give a cold cup of water to someone in need? And if so, you did that to Jesus. Did you visit someone in prison? If so, you visited Jesus. Someday Jesus is going to say, hey, not just did you read your Bible every day, but how did you serve and pour your life out for the people around you? Because I'm not just interested in you as an individual. I'm interested in this community. So if we want to be a community that is living under the blessing, not the judgment of God, it is our responsibility to live as model citizens, not just as individuals, but together for the kingdom of Jesus Christ.